Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Threat Talk. I'm your host, Bob Hansman, and today we're going to look at something Dark Reading Magazine recently put out. It was a series of five articles covering 17 pages on a collection that Dark Reading entitled Understanding DNS Threats and How to Use DNS to Expand Your Cybersecurity Arsenal. Now, one of the contributing writers was Krupa Shrevetstan, um, who's one of the directors of the Infoblox Security Products team, and we've invited her here today to discuss some of those highlights. Thank you for joining us today, Krupa. Thanks for having me, Bob. Um, you know, most people, I want to start out with the basic, because most people in IT, they know what DNS is. You know, it's the phone book of the internet, but they tend to think of it as something that the networking team manages. Why would security people care? So could you kind of summarize, you know, mainly, you know, what's some of the main security values that, you know, why would anybody care about DNS? Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, right, DNS is traditionally considered a, a networking tool that, um, that is needed for connectivity. So let's say I'm going to a website, it goes through DNS, I'm accessing my email, there's a DNS involved, right? So people don't think about DNS when it comes to security though. So, but one of the things to think about is just like how we use DNS for connectivity, from accessing everything from applications to websites to uh, email, the bad actors also use DNS as a way to get access to the network and uh, try to get um, do some reconnaissance on how the network looks like, or maybe they use it for infiltrating malware or exfiltrating data, or even your standard command and control communications. That also happens through DNS. So if you look at where is a different uh, you know, stages of the kill chain, so to speak, DNS is involved in almost all of them, right? So, um, and the reason that bad actors use DNS is simply to avoid detection because everybody knows that DNS is needed for connectivity and usually it's not inspected, right? By your web gateways or your firewalls or your other proxies. And it's generally a trusted protocol, but more recently people have become aware of the misuse of DNS uh, by malware and ransomware and you know whatnot. So it has been gaining traction as a security tool. And uh, there are tons of material out there that talk about different use cases for DNS-based security. But the underlying um, thing is it's a great foundational security layer to block a lot of the known threats earlier in the kill chain. So I know you and I talked about this notion of shifting left the uh, detection, right? So um, the more you can shift left your malware detection and blocking, the less it can spread laterally and the less damage um, uh, it would cause, right? Um, and so when you say shift left, we mean that DNS is the first point of connection for um for our devices, the first hop, if you will, from my laptop is a DNS uh, server. That's the first hop. So if you are using Threat Intel to block, um, let's say malware CNC, or even preventing me from going to a website that could be hosting malware, you've done a lot of that work right at the closest to the endpoints, closest to the potential um, compromise, right? So that's what we mean by shift left. And DNS can be that conduit to, to do that uh, malware detection. And also I talked about prevention, right? So it's not just once a laptop is compromised that you can detect 
CNC communications using DNS, you can even prevent a user from accidentally going to a website that could be hosting malware. So if I've got like, um, you know, you talked a lot about where, you know, DNS is being used for the communications, but just a regular email gives me a link. I click on the link. Um, it's going to do a URL or uh, send out a URL, which, you know, my browser, uh, or excuse me, my, uh, my next gen firewall or my secure web gateway, those other tools, they're looking at URLs, but eventually the URL then has to get resolved into a DNS address. And so in that specific scenario, DNS would be the second hop, except that the DNS request, I mean, that address, uh, there, this is the other aspect I really like about that. Even if the URL is going to be scanned first by the, the next gen firewall or, or SWIG, these guys are cranking out, you know, thousands of new URLs every day, but they all go to the same DNS address. So you're kind of waiting in line, hoping that your, your, your URL defense tool is getting updated on the latest URLs all the time. But if you're doing it at DNS, even if they keep changing that, that's the evasion part you were talking about. They're using lookalikes and, and you know, they're spamming hundreds of URLs and in all of that has to be resolved to an IP address. IP addresses don't get randomly rotated super quick. They can't do that. It's, it's really hard as, a, as an attacker to find a place on the internet to host your stuff. And so those IP addresses don't change. So DNS, looking at it, the DNS, you're not only getting ahead of the curve, but you're also evading, and, and you mentioned it, you're, you're dealing with a lot of those evasion techniques that they're using. That's absolutely right. And and you brought up a good point, the lookalike domains, right? Um, lookalike domains are, you know, what the name suggests, right? These are domains that look like a legitimate domain, but obviously they're controlled by a bad actor. And, um, you know, again, um, as you said, the, all of this connectivity to even the lookalike domains happen through a DNS lookup. And so if you know uh, a list of, let's say, all potential lookalike domains for a particular legitimate domain, you cannot, you can block that resolution at the DNS level. And then so uh, you're preventing a user from going to, let's say, a banking site that looks like a legitimate banking site, and you know, he may give away his password, his user ID, etc. Um, and so you're actually preventing all of that um, because you have lookalike domain detection in your DNS server. The other thing to, to think about is there are additional security gaps um, that the traditional security tools um, cannot uh, address. So we talk lookalike domains is one of them. The other one would be DNS-based data exfiltration. So this is where, you know, and I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but this is where data can be exfiltrated over the DNS um, um, queries. Uh, other things like domain generation algorithms. So there are DNS-specific threats that require DNS layer security for detection and blocking. So it's not just um, you know, standard malware like ransomware phishing and exploits, but you have other advanced threats that could also be misusing DNS. And for that, you, know, you need uh, DNS layer security to detect and block that. Well, you know, um, I, I think most of the listeners are aware that I, I've been in, in this for years. And um, I remember when if you got an email, normally they would have attachments, then they would started using the links. But even the link would just take you to an attachment. You are now infected. Viruses doing its bad thing. But today's uh, attacks are multi-stage, very complex. And, you know, they'll last for months. And 
they take their time, but during all that time, they are communicating. There is a, they are really chatty. Today's attacks are very chatty. And so it's not just that initial infection, but it's all that time in between while they are moving laterally. You mentioned, mentioned that where they might call out to a command and control uh, solution. Um, they might be downloading other tools. Um, but then you mentioned the data infiltration and exfiltration, and that's where I was, I was going to go with this. So on that data infiltration where they're like downloading more malware tools, if they use HTTP and, you know, HTTPS or FTP, there are tools that will intercept that and, and scan it. But they're starting to use DNS for that directly, right? And, and just totally bypassing the other communication channels. That is absolutely right. So, um, you know, DNS is this conduit from within a network to the external internet, right? So um, more, a lot of the times what we see is uh, we see DNS being misused to either infiltrate data, uh, infiltrate malware from outside the network into a company's network that can be done using what's called DNS infiltration. And then the other part of that equation is exfiltrating sensitive information. So let's say my laptop is compromised and I have some sensitive company information on my laptop, right? And now this malware on my device is um, going to get access to that sensitive information. And what it can do is it can kind of break up that data into small chunks. Um, and again, as I'm using DNS in my day-to-day -day work, that data could be embedded into the DNS traffic that is going out of my laptop to the internet. On the Because my laptop is compromised, my DNS request could be going to a server on the internet that is um, controlled by the bad actor. And, uh, and now this data is slowly getting exfiltrated over DNS from my laptop to that server that's controlled by the bad actor. And at the, on the other side, that bad actor can piece this information together um, and now he's got access to that, that sensitive data. And uh, an example where DNS, oh, this is also called DNS tunneling, um, right? And an example of where a threat group has used DNS tunneling extensively is um, oil rig. So um, in the Sunburst, also in the Sunburst supply chain attack, malware used DNS to exfiltrate data about the victim. And, you know, again, it was detected after uh, a significant amount of time. So um, that is something to really consider when you look at um, uh, securing the DNS layer. It's not just standard malware, but it's also preventing malware infiltration and data exfiltration. And one of the best ways to detect these type of advanced threats is to not just rely on standard uh, threat intelligence or reputation-based detection. So reputation-based detection is where you're blocking resolution based on uh, known bad threats, right? So you know which neighborhoods on the internet are bad because it's there in your reputation feeds, in your threat intelligence feeds, and you're blocking that traffic. But data exfiltration and some advanced threats could happen uh, and it could be connecting to destinations that are not necessarily no, uh, don't necessarily have a reputation associated with it. It could be new infrastructure that has been set up by the bad actor recently. And so it takes time for reputation to be associated with domains that pop up. So uh, augmenting threat intelligence with what we call um, DNS-based analytics, so AIML-based analytics, 
which look at the DNS queries that are going out to the internet from a device on an ongoing basis to check for things like presence of data. Is data is, is, do these queries look like it's hiding some actual data, customer information or credit card information, healthcare information? So all of that can be done using um, analytics. So you kind of have to complement threat intelligence with DNS-based analytics to detect these threats. Yeah, we've, uh, of course, we've seen incidents where they use this data infiltration, exfiltration, um, not just for the massive kind of stuff, but even if they're going to do the the massive, you know, theft of data over HTTPS, they, they, they are using DNS even for just the little small things, like when they first penetrate, they might steal just some passwords because, you know, these attacks, again, multi-stage complex, they, they get on one machine and then they steal just enough information to help maybe get access or elevate privileges to someplace else. So they're just looking at small snippets. This stuff's easy to hide in DNS packets and avoid detection without some AI kind of, you know, that knows what a good normal DNS request looks like to be able to say, hey, this has got a whole lot of extra data it doesn't need and, and be able to find it you know, intelligently. Um, but then there's also, uh, I know we've seen quite a bit of ransomware that they're using this as a way to download the encryption keys and other instructions. So again, the, the keys are coming in, the encryption's taking place and yet nothing was communicated at all over HTTP, HTTPS, all the regular channels are just going right around it all by embedding this stuff in, in DNS. But I'd like to, to shift this then to another, because uh, the technology keeps evolving. We tend to think, well, DNS, it's a foundation. It's been around forever, but it is evolving. And one of the biggest things over the last couple of years was DNS over TLS and DNS over HTTPS or dot and doe. And I know that right now, a lot of enterprises are looking at, are there ways for us to ad adopt that and, and use it in some controlled way? But essentially, it allows endpoints to put a, an encrypted tunnel going out from end to end, which, again, bypasses all your detections at the gateway and stuff. So what, uh, you know, it, it, they're using that, obviously, is another way to get this uh, data in and out of a system. Um, what are you seeing on that? And what, what can people do about it? Yeah, um, so DNS uh, or over TLS and DNS or HTTPS or dot endo, as it's called, um, came about because people are concerned about privacy, right? Um, and, you know, I like to say security and privacy are kind of two sides of the same coin, right? But sometimes, you know, like when, you, when you're very much concerned about privacy, and the reason came out was they were concerned about, you know, the DNS queries getting exposed, somebody snooping right into the DNS requests and getting some information out of it or figuring out your browsing patterns, for example. And, you know, there could be legitimate users, like they want to show you some ads that are relevant for you, things like that, or they could be malicious users um, um, for DNS snooping. But so Dart Endo came about as a way to improve a user's privacy, right? But, um, so, and to do that, what happened was uh, there were a lot of these door dot resolvers uh, set up, like door resolvers set up on the internet that would support um, this encryption uh, capabilities. But like you said, if you're, if, and, you know, there were some browsers where it was set by default to go to these door resolvers instead of going to your enterprise control DNS server, which is a risky proposition because you don't want to go, you don't want your enterprise devices to be accessing some random door resolver on the internet, which 
the admin, the IT admin has no control over, right? You don't know what security policies are, are implemented there and uh, which is probably minimal, right? And you, you lose visibility. You don't know what your enterprise users are, are doing. So um, bypassing your enterprise DNS is always a bad idea. And so the, the recommendation we give to, um, you know, to, our, to our customers and the general community is, um, uh, you know, door, dot and door is not bad. It's, it's good. It's good to have privacy. But you want to make sure that your enterprise servers support um, dot and door if you want to use those capabilities. Um, if not, then I think security always trumps privacy. You want to make sure that um, your, your DNS requests from your enterprise devices are going to your DNS resolver that you control, that the, that the admin controls, so that when we imply, apply DNS security policy, you're able to de detect things that we talked about, ransomware activity or data exfiltration, and the DNS traffic is not bypassing all those controls and going to some random door resolver on the internet. Um, now, I know you work with a lot of uh, core uh, networking technologies and how they apply to security. Um, so I wanted to go a little bit beyond the article and, and talk about other things, uh, other network services. I know IPAM is, is one that uh, I've heard you talk about and you've written about before, um, about the visibility that that can give to a security team. So. Uh, let's continue that theme of you know security value that's in, buried in networking resources that we security teams probably want to get access to. That's absolutely right. So DNS, like we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, is a, a traditionally been a networking tool. There are two other related technologies: DHCP and IP address management, or IPAM as we call it, uh, which are also um, primarily used by the networking teams, but has a great value for security operations. So we all know that securing a network um, requires visibility of what's on the network. The first step is to know, knowing, the first step to security is knowing what's on your network because obviously you can't secure it if you can't see it. And so um, IP address management or IPAM is this, uh, you know, database that gives you everything that's connected on the network because your DHCP server provides the IP address for anything that's trying to join a network. And that information is stored in the IP address management database. So IPAM is this kind of single source of truth for anything that's connected to the network. This could be physical devices, virtual um, resources, cloud resources, if there's a cloud environment in place. Anything that requires an IP address, your IPAM is going to know about it, right? So now you've crossed that first hurdle of knowing what's on your network, right? The second piece is IPAM also has additional attributes. So it can tell you not just uh, the IP address of the device that's connected, it can tell you where it is. So which part of the network, right? Which subnet, so to speak, to get technical, um, which part of the network it is in. Um, and the other thing is it can tell you who it's assigned to if there's an AD integration with built with the IPAM solution. So now you get the username. The other technology I talked about, which is DHCP, um, has what's called a fingerprint capability. And so when a device is trying to join the network, it not only provides the lease, but it also can identify based on the system characteristics what OS that device is running. So it can know if it's a Windows machine or a Mac device, right? And so that amount of fingerprint information together with the IPAM 
metadata, so to speak, now gives you more asset information, right? It, it not just an IP address, but like I said, who it is assigned to, where in the network, what type of device, etc. Now, let's. How is it valuable for the security ops? So let's say security operations teams get they get an alert saying there's some malicious malware activity happening on the network. They get an alert. Maybe they get an IP address from one of their security tools. Now you know IP addresses change frequently. It's not giving you any identifiable information about that asset. And so when they look, when they get the the data from a DHCP and IPAM solution, now they can do better correlation. They know where the device is, right? They know um, uh, what type and who it's assigned to and things like that. The other thing for security operations um, is it, the audit trail that your DNS logs provides is super valuable because with that audit trail, they get historical information about what assets that device has been accessing through a DNS lookup. So uh, together with the DNS audit trail, with the DHCP and IPAM data, they can definitely correlate events faster and, and you know, take action faster. Yeah, this this is an investigators or a, or a threat analyst dream to have have all that context. And there's actually um, it just occurred to me you're dealing. Uh, we, we almost had to move this because you're dealing right now with the current event where um, IoT devices um, are all at risk right now because there was a C library. Somebody found a vulnerability in a C library that's used in all of those devices. And this ability you're talking about with IPAM. Um, it some of that uh, metadata that you were talking about is also like the the version of the firmware in it and things like that. So that if a company right now felt like, well, we are using some of those devices, they'd be able to check to see what version of, of firmware they're using. Do they need to do updates? And and they could assess their current uh, status against this current threat um, even before the patches are available. They'll know whether it's something they need to be worried about. That's right. So in IoT environments, what's the what's challenging is that um, you know those devices are generally you know low cost devices or they're not built with robust security measures in place, uh, and patching, like you said, is is spotty at best, right? Um, and and when there is some vulnerability that's detected, developing a patch, making sure the admins implement the patch, apply the patch, or the firmware updates, all that takes time. Right, and so between the time that the vulnerability is discovered and these patches are are implemented, there is a window of uh, exposure, and so uh, and you bring up a good point. DNS security can be a great foundational kind of easy way to um, to have another layer of security in IoT environments where you can't always rely on patching or endpoint control. Right, these are non-standard devices, so you can't always rely on endpoint uh, control either. So, um, so DNS becomes this next layer where you can implement some security controls and look for things like botnet formation from these IoT devices or see if the DNS requests are going to uh, certain destinations which look weird from these IoT devices. And you can also apply granular prop policy. You can say, okay, this part of my IoT environment is only allowed these type of um, queries or, you know, or, or they get allowed to access only these set of uh, domains outside the network and things like that. Yeah, I, I uh, being able to monitor all those little devices, even when it comes to switches, um, I worked with a, a company years ago that 
Um, one of their customers was a developer of uh, it was they developed actually firmware utilities for uh, appliances, uh, mass producing appliances. So every one of their engineers actually had four or five pieces of equipment in their cube. And so they gave everybody an eight port Linksys switch. So they ran one wire to everybody's cube and then in their cubes, and they were actually larger than what you might think a cube is because they had a lot of equipment these guys would, would be working with and they'd have this eight port switch. Then all of a sudden a vulnerability came out in that particular version of the Linksys OS and they only detected it because all of a sudden all of the Linksys uh, switches in the whole company, and there were hundreds of them, all started doing a denial of service attack. They'd been compromised and were being used in a denial of service attack. And they noticed it because all of a sudden their gateway bandwidth just died and they couldn't get legitimate business done because of all these devices. So um, yeah, the, the compromises and, and the weird effects they can have, it wasn't an attack on the company. It was a compromise of devices that could then be used to attack other companies. Um, this this whole the, the way they they can abuse and use your network is is horrible and and having that visibility is important. I know that the now we had um, uh, we had a guy named Bob Rose on who's the networking guru I call on whenever we really want to dig into networking. He was here about a month ago and we talked about this and he was talking about being able to monitor things like printers and and switches and you know networking equipment that is also uh, vulnerable. And I think that's really important to call out here because we we really have a bad habit when we talk security of thinking laptops and servers, laptops yeah. and servers, right. and, and data. Oh, let's go data-centric. Um, but if you're responsible for a company's organization, kind of like my example of the Linksys routers taking down bandwidth, that was a network problem that needed to be solved by security personnel. Um, but to even notice the problem required both teams working together. This... And, and that data from the networking side had to be available to the security side. Like you say, IPAM data, if the security team doesn't have access to the IPAM data, they can't use it. And that leads me to the last thing. We weren't going to get into this because we thought we would really be going down a lot more, but we've got about five minutes left. And I wanted to talk about all this data that you're talking about that's for the security team. You've talked about uh, uh, what it could be used for. Um, but I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about ecosystems, which are ways to automate and and streamline how that data gets to the right tools. Right, right. So um, a DNS security solution that detects and blocks ransomware or malware CNC communication is great. But what is better is if it's go if it tells the other security tools, hey, look, I blocked this. But that laptop or that device or that server is still compromised. There needs to be some additional mitigation measures that need to happen so that we're not always seeing this uh, these bad DNS requests, yeah. the malicious DNS requests. Yeah, you're, you're talking device. you're talking about that scenario where, like like I said, they're really chatty. If you block it up front, then you don't have to tell everybody. Oh, the phishing link uh, in your email, we blocked it, no problem. But so much of today's uh, attacks are detected later in the stream. And while you might block that communication, it's the device still has more, there's more to be done there. And um, that's, that's a scenario you're talking about, right? Absolutely. So that device has still, could still be having, uh, could still be running a piece of malware on that. That's why it made that uh, CNC request or whatever it is in the first place, right? So it's still compromised. And so 
Um, the ecosystem approach is where you're, uh, you're blocking it at the DNS level, but you're also, let's say, triggering a scan from, uh, by integrating with a, a vulnerability scanner that's on the network, right? So now you blocked it, you're telling the vulnerability scanner, hey, look, you need to scan this device. Maybe there's some vulnerabilities there. Or you can um, uh, raise a ServiceNow ticket automatically. So you're letting the IT admin know, I blocked the device communication, but you know that device needs some cleanup, right? Or you can send all this information that the great data that we talked about or the IPAM data and DHCP data, all the information can be sent to a SOAR tool if a company is using SOAR or their SIM platform. So now they get more context um, about that alert, about the event, um, and so they can do better analysis and better gain better understanding of the threats. So now what you're doing with this ecosystem approach is you're triggering action in real time. And so you're minimizing the, the dwell time for threats on those devices. And uh, you're also providing better context on those events. And when you do that, um, you are making those security tools that companies have already invested in more effective, right? And they're getting better ROI out of their existing security ecosystem. Well, in the SecOps team itself, is a lot more effective when they have the information they need when they need it. So that, that's a big win. Unfortunately, we are out of time now. Um, uh, and so I want to thank you very much for joining us today, Krupa, and uh, for your time today. Thank you for having me. It was fun. And I'd like to thank all of our viewers and listeners for their time as well. I'd like you to join us next time, though, as we continue our efforts to help you stay on top of cybersecurity and ahead of cyber risks on Threat Talk. 